You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Jesus, we ask this morning you'll be present with us. Holy Spirit, convict us, remind us, illuminate your text to us. And God, let us leave here today having spent some time with you. Do work on our hearts. Make us like you. Amen. All righty. We are finishing out today our little series called No Bench. We've been, uh, for the month of September, we've taken off from our study of Mark, and we've been talking about what it means for the, the average Christian, the everyday Christian, to be actively engaged in the work of the kingdom. Well, essentially what we've said is, in Christ's kingdom, there's no such thing as, as simply um, a second string Christian, right? There's no, there's no observers, there's no bench. We're all called into the work, called into active participation in what God is doing. And essentially, the way this has worked out thus far is we've said this, man, the gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing. That, that in the death caused by sin, caused by the curse, this good and gracious God has made a way for His creation to be alive, to have peace and joy eternally with Him, that, that Jesus made this way for us on the cross, and that actually stirs something within us. And so we talked about how at the very beginning, this, this idea that, that the engagement in the mission is fueled by one thing and one thing only, and that's worship of this God. And when we say worship, we mean essentially treasuring of this God, of realizing who he is and what he's done, and actually in a heart level engaging the fact that that is pleasurable. To actually experience the love and goodness and grace and service of our sweet Jesus is something that is so pleasing to the human heart that we actually begin to treasure it and value it and enjoy it. And that that fuels our engagement in the kingdom. We talked about how, how God's unconditional love for us, that thing that makes him so enjoyable, is fueled by his, his state, his status as creator, that God as creator made everything and made human beings and stamped his image into us, that humans are made in the image of God and the likeness of God, and there's something in humanity, even in our sin, even in the curse, even in our brokenness, that is inherently precious and valuable and treasurable to God, that he loves us and pursues us so faithfully, those things go together, right? And so we talked about how because those two things are true, because because we can actually worship God because he's actually enjoyable and he's actually better than the things around us, and because we're actually precious to God because of his image stamped in us, and he actually loves us and actually enjoys spending time with you. By the way, if you get nothing else out of this message, hear the truth that Jesus actually enjoys you, that he actually likes you, that it's not an obligatory theological thing where God and his righteousness was reading his Bible and was like, oh shoot, and I told them I'd love them and be with them forever and now I actually have to. No, God actually loves you. In all your junk and in all your sin, he actually gets a kick out of spending time with you. That's crazy. It's insanity. And so, because these two things are true, we begin to talk about how we then engage the world, and we looked at how Jesus engaged the world where he met people in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of the destructiveness of the curse, and he met them with the dignity of love and presence. We talked about how Jesus called out to a broken and dead and sinful world and said, come to me exactly as you are. And so we as the church get to model our Jesus, and we get to love the world around us exactly as they are. God, I I love the the way it's phrased sometimes in our circles, where they say God loves his creatures exactly as they are, but loves them too much to leave them exactly as they are. That he meets us in the midst of the curse, 
and yet through his blood on the cross draws us to something better. What, what a gift from this God. So that's been what we've talked about so far. And, and hopefully at this point, you're, you've, you've processed some of this and landed somewhere in this world. Yes, I affirm that. Yeah, absolutely. God is enjoyable. The gospel is actually joy-inducing. I see how God loves his creatures. I see how I should model that as a follower of Christ. The question is simply, how the heck do we actually do that? How do I actually walk out of this building and go home and love my neighbors and my family and my coworkers and my obnoxious kids exactly as they are? I've got a three-year-old. You've got to get a little grace with me. How do we do that? Well, I won't talk about that today. And, and if you guys will allow me, I'd love for us to go hard today to actually finish this thing out with a little bit of fire. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have house Bibles at the end of each row. I mean, I, and I would just encourage you to say, we, we really, really believe in the value of the Word of God for believers. And so if you don't have access to a Bible, please snag one of those, or, or even better, talk to one of our pastors and we'll get you a nicer one. We want to make sure um, that everyone has a chance to engage God's Word. We're going to read a large chunk today. We're going to do something a little differently than how we normally engage Scripture. And in our setting, we tend to really analyze a text, and so we take a smaller section of Scripture, and we tend to kind of, kind of microscope in on nuance. And today, we're going to look at a little larger chunk than we normally look at, and we're actually going to skip over some of the really cool details, not because they're not important, but because we want to see a larger theme in what Jesus does in a larger section here. So we're in Luke 14, and in the first verse of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we hear this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes... He may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, well, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor and crippled. 
crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And this is the word of the Lord. So we have a long scene here. What I'd like to do is kind of, or kind of, kind of multiple pieces of this scene. I'd like to move through the various pieces of this, this story and kind of give us an overview of each one so that we can see a larger picture of what's going on. And so the, the thing is this. The actual scene is really similar to what we looked at last week, right? Jesus is at a party with some Pharisees. And if you were here last week, we talked about how this occurrence was actually a normal social structure in this day that a wealthy or a renowned person would have these kind of public dinner parties in, in a courtyard outside their house. So they would set up their dining room table and the couches and their guests would recline around the table. And, and remember, these are, these are low tables, right? Think like a little shorter than your coffee table. And all the guests would be laying down on their side, leaning on their left elbow, with their feet splayed out behind them, eating with their right hand and talking. And they would invite, basically anyone from the community could come and sit in the courtyard and just watch everyone eat dinner and talk. Which really, I mean, if you think about it, if you didn't have Hulu, you know, I mean, there's worse ways to spend your evening, right? But, but this is, this is an actual thing. And so Jesus is here. He's at another dinner party with another group of religious leaders. And this time, the text tells us these guys have set out to trap him. They're watching him carefully. And so they have essentially planted this ill person here. They've invited Jesus over on a Sabbath and they're, they're waiting to see what he does, right? They're, they're just kind of looking at him. This, this mirrors really similarly to a story we read in Mark 3 uh, that happens in a synagogue at a worship service. But this is at someone's house. There's a man there who has dropsy, which is essentially uh, a term in, in, in scripture, at least. It's just a term for someone who has lots of bodily swelling that doesn't go away. And so this guy's kind of all swollen up in whatever way. And he's there and he's uncomfortable and whatever. And Jesus looks at him and just asks his guests, hey, is, I, I love this, by the way, that they're, they're waiting to trap him, but Jesus just like walks up and like triggers the trap. Like, Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. So he just says, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they all just get kind of quiet and sit there and they're waiting to see what he does. And Jesus heals this guy and then he essentially calls them out. And, and again, we're not, we're not going to zoom into the details on each section of this. But the first section, Jesus heals this guy. He, he walks joyfully into the Pharisees' theological trap, heals this dude of his suffering, and then sends him away, and then calls out these religious leaders, his hosts, for being hypocrites. By essentially saying, listen, if your kid or your ox fell down in a hole on the Sabbath, you would get them out. So get off my case for healing a guy who's hurting on the Sabbath. And, and the theological trap of this is brilliant because this guy has an illness that, as far as they know, is not actually life-threatening, right? And so they bring him here thinking, oh, it would be totally acceptable for Jesus to essentially notice that this guy is ill, wait till tomorrow, and then heal him. That would, that would do everything we need him to do. But Jesus is just refuses to play that stupid game. So he heals the guy, and he calls him out. And then he turns to the audience, the, the, the guests at the party, and he gives this really simple teaching where he essentially talks about the structure of these dinner parties. And, and essentially the structure is the, the pillows would be arranged in kind of a big horseshoe leading up to the head of the table where the host would sit. This is the seat of honor. And the most honored guests would sit closest to the host at the, the, the top of the curve of the horseshoe. And so Jesus gives this really practical teaching where he says, hey, when you get invited to a party, don't go take the seat of honor. Because if someone more distinguished than you shows up, your host is going to be like, dude, this is really awkward, but you need to, you need to move. And then you're going to have to be super embarrassed and take the worst seat at the party. Instead, take just the worst seat at the party, and then your host will be like, whoa, 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 dude, what are you sitting down there for? Come up here, and you'll be honored in front of everyone. Now, this teaching is brilliant. 
It's brilliant because what Jesus does is he takes what looks like just really practical wisdom, which, by the way, would have been readily accepted by all these folk because, well, essentially, he plays into their sin. He plays into their desire for social standing and prestige and honor, and he's like, hey, let me give you guys a little, you know, I'm a traveling rabbi. Let me give you a little advice on how these parties work, all right? Next time you get invited to one of these bad boys, here's what you do. And you can imagine everyone being like, oh, yeah. That makes perfectly good sense. And then right at the end, Jesus takes this simple, essentially just good advice teaching, and he slaps an ethical principle onto it. That's how it works, by the way. If you humble yourself, you'll be honored. And if you honor yourself, you'll be humbled. He, he, he draws them in with this teaching that everyone at the table, even his enemies, would just be like, oh yeah, it's good sense, makes good sense. And then he draws it back around to a gospel truth about arrogance and about exalting oneself. And then he turns to the host of the party and he, and he really zones in on this theme, arrogance and humility and what you value. He turns to the host and he essentially says, hey, listen, when you do these parties, don't invite people who are just as wealthy and prestigious as you. Because when you do that, you're just setting them, you're setting them up with a social debt so that they'll invite you back and you'll have chances to show up at their parties and sit at the seat of honor. And it's really just about puffing yourself up. How about next time you do this? How about you invite poor marginalized people and hurt people who can do nothing to pay you back? How about you do that? Which, which really is just a ludicrous idea. In, in light of the cultural, kind of the cultural set of the day, they would have heard this and not had a category for it. No, Jesus, that's not how it works. We invite all the rich people and then poor marginalized people come listen and they eat the scraps. Like, we're being kind by doing this. You're, you're making this out like we're jerks, but man, we, we give them all the leftovers. And Jesus is like, man, you're missing it. You're missing it. These parties have to do with you. They have to do with building your social clout and building your power and building your authority. Just don't do that. And at the end, he mentions this idea of the resurrection, the final judgment, the the eschatology, which was a, a, a really, really keen theological subject in this day. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were really interested in eschatology and God's judgment. And so when he mentions the idea of reward being given at the judgment, one of the guys pipes up and he's like, yeah, woo, that's going to be awesome. That's something I can get behind. Blessed is he who gets to feast with God at the day of judgment. Am I right? And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about that for a minute. You are right. And then he gives this teaching where he essentially says, but just so you know, most of the people who think they're going to be invited to that party aren't invited to that party. So whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. By the way, this whole system, everything you're doing, it's about you. It's about your authority. It's not about helping anyone. You're totally missing it. And if you think that somehow these public expressions of your religion and piety are gaining you standing with God, that's not how it works. When God comes back, the people who are at his party are not going to be the people you think will be there. And he tells this parable about a guy who has a huge feast. Think like a block party or a wedding feast or just a big like harvest celebration. And the way these feasts worked in this day is there would have to be a couple rounds of invitations. You would send out notice to all your friends and say, guys, God has blessed me. We had an awesome harvest or my daughter's getting married or my business is doing really well. So we're going to have a huge party sometime in the general vicinity of September, October. I'm not sure. We're going to have to wait and see. It's essentially this vague idea of save the month. I want you to come to my sick party. Just be ready. Because it took a while to get these parties ready. And so everyone would be like, yeah, sure, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll set it aside. And then when it was actually go time, you would send out the second invitation like, all right, it's going down. Be here in two days. It's going to be sick. 
And so he, he invites everyone to this party. Everyone accepts. He gets everything ready. He sends out the final invitation. The food is cooked. The wine is here. The music is off the chain. Let's get this done. And the servant goes out with the second round of invitations. And all of a sudden, everyone starts hemming and hawing. And they give these really lame excuses. Listen, man, I know you said about the party or whatever, but like, I just bought some land and I really need to go inspect it. So like, just let, I'm sorry, just let me out of it. It's, it's I, need, I just need to go check it. It's, it's for business. You know how it is, man. Like it's, and the next guy's like, yeah, dude, I, I know I said I'd be there, but man, I just bought all these oxen. And so, you know, I got to make sure they're good. So like, if you could, like, it's, I'm sorry. You know, it's just, it's a business thing. And the last guy's like, I got married. I'm not coming. <laughs> you know why? <laughs> And here's the problem with this. All three of these are terrible excuses. They're terrible excuses. You wouldn't buy a huge chunk of land without, oh, I don't know, looking at it. Right? So this guy knows what his land looks like. He doesn't want to go to the party. He wants to go enjoy his new field. He likes his new field. I bought this sick new field. I want to go frolic through it and stuff. And this other guy bought all these oxen. Guess what? Same thing. You don't buy oxen without looking at them. He knows what they look like. He's just stoked about them. Dude, I can't come. I got to go like put these weird things on their shoulders and make them walk around my fields. It's going to be really cool. I can't be there. I'm sorry. Yokes. Dang it. Why couldn't I come up with that? (laughs) And then the last guy, you're like, well, I understand that one. Here's the thing. In, in, In Jewish culture in that day, when you got married, you actually got exempt from all civic duties for a year. You couldn't be drafted in the military, you didn't have to pay taxes, didn't have to show up at city council meetings. You were good for a year. So what this guy's essentially saying is, listen, man, I just got married. I don't have to do this stuff. I get to enjoy my family for a season. Which in, in, initially is kind of like, oh, okay, I understand that. But what we miss is, that's such a dig on this guy. That's essentially saying to this host, listen, man, your party is as boring as a city council meeting. I don't want to be there. I want to be at home with my wife. Sorry. They were excused from civic duties, but this isn't a civic duty. This is a friend who's prepared a feast and invited his friends to come celebrate. This is like the perfect excuse to get your wife out and go cut a rug. It's like, sorry, man, I can't do it. So these excuses are really lame. They're really lame. What these excuses essentially say to the guy throwing the party is, Listen, man, I get it. You, you've done a ton of work. That's cool. I just, like, honestly, I like this other stuff better. So I have a better option. I'll see you later. Dang. Right? That's so cold. <laughs> and so the, the guy preparing this party says, well, you know what? We already killed the stupid calves. We already brought in the wine. The band's already here. Let's do this thing. Go find anyone. I don't care who it is. Go find homeless people. Go bring in the poor. Bring in everyone I didn't invite. And so they go and they draw in everyone from the surrounding area. And the servant comes back and says, there's still empty tables. And the master's like, we're doing this party. Go find people. Drag them here. Carry them here. I don't care. This party's going to be amazing. And I want it to bless people. That's pretty intense right? We didn't read this section, but immediately following our passage, Jesus looks out at his followers who are with him and essentially says, hey, if you want to be my follower, you better count the cost. You better love me more than you love this world. There's this idea here that the general message, the general tone of what's going on at this party is that Jesus is hanging out with some really righteous, popular, intelligent religious people. And he essentially tells them, you do not understand the kingdom. And you don't understand the kingdom because you just love stuff way more than you love God. You just love yourselves and you love your social standing and you love your wealth and you love your comfort more than you love God and more than you love people. And that's just not how God's kingdom works. And then he turns to his followers and essentially says, do you see this? If you want to follow me, 
You can't love that stuff. You have to love God more. And then he tells his followers, so think about that. Don't don't mess this one up. Don't say you're going to follow after the kingdom and then a couple months from now be like, actually, just kidding. I actually like the world more than I like you. Don't do that. Love God more than you love stuff. And then come follow after me. And then the opening verses of chapter 15 are beautiful. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day is when it comes down to it, you love this world more than you love God. And that's just not what I'm here to do. And yet when he gave that same message to hurting, broken, trapped in their sin, marginalized people, well, they flocked to him. They flocked to him. And those same religious people looked at that and couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle it. It upset them. Look at this. This guy says he's doing kingdom work, but look who he hangs out with. Look who's, look who's, none of our religious people are hanging out with him. Obviously, he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. Surrounded by sinners and tax collectors. He has prostitutes rubbing his feet at parties. This guy knows nothing about our God. And Jesus looks at them and says, you think you know God, but you're not going to be the one at the party. Beloved, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy, and I want us to actually think about that. It's, I think it's really simple. When it comes down to it, when we actually ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a part of this kingdom work? What does it mean to get off the bench and to get into the work? What does it mean to love people exactly as they are, to see the image of God within sinful, hurting people, and to actively be a part of God's invading this broken world and taking back his kingdom? It's really stinking simple. Love God more than you love your stuff. Love people more than you love your stuff, your junk, your rust, and your moth holes. Which just begs the question, do we? Do we actually? If, if someone didn't know you, if they just had your life on paper, if they just had the bullet points of your daily schedule and your iCal and your bank account statements and they looked at the story of your life, would they see a life that loves stuff or people? That loves junk or loves God? That's a great question to ask yourself. It's not a pleasant question to ask yourself. But that's a great question to reflect on. If we saw the breakdown of your day by day of what takes up your mental, emotional, and spiritual energy, what do you love more? We talked about this the very first week. Human beings are self-motivated. We'll seek our own joy. We just do. And this is going to sound weird to say it this way, but God wired you that way. That's not a result of the fall. God wired you to pursue joy. Because he knows that he is the greatest joy you can possibly experience. He wired you to have a longing for intimacy and joy and life with him. For you to actually pursue that. We will all gladly make sacrifices to engage in the things we enjoy. So the question is simply, what do you enjoy? Do you enjoy God or do you enjoy stuff? Do you enjoy his kingdom or do you enjoy this world? Do you enjoy junk or people made in the image of God? 
I'm going to read a couple statistics to us. And I, I understand, by the way, fully, that this kind of information is actually totally useless. I understand fully that this kind of information, apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life to engage your heart for God's love and work in this kingdom, that this is just words and numbers. But I want to share this. Around half of nursing home residents in the United States receive less than one outside visit every 12 months. Within five miles of where we're standing, that represents 15 nursing homes and about 700 human beings made in the image of God who have not had the dignity of an outside visitor from a friend, a family member, a church in the last 12 months. In the St. Louis metro area, note that we are the 17th largest metro area in the United States. There are around 1,500 total homeless people. Hopefully that number is surprisingly small to you. Uh, It's not as many as we think when you think about 2.7 million people in the Metroplex. But that number is pretty close. It fluctuates up and down each year, but it's pretty close. Right now, there are around 750 Protestant and Evangelical churches in the St. Louis metro area. That means for every church in the area within which you live, there are about two homeless people. So just a thought as you think about how churches work to engage homelessness in our city. Whole church's resources going towards about two homeless people. These numbers change a lot, and they're probably inaccurate by the time I'm saying this. But there are around 21 kids that need to be fostered in all of Missouri for every Protestant church in St. Louis. So when you think about those churches that we listed, the 750 that exist just in our area, there are about 21 kids total in our state for every one of those churches. If two of those 21, their fostering actually moved into a full-time adoption, if the 750 churches in St. Louis found 21 beds to foster 21 kids and two of those 21 turned into full-time permanent home adoptions, there would be a waiting list. There would be no more kids up for adoption in our state. There would be no more kids in the foster system in our state. There would be churches waiting for the next kid to enter the system. And speaking of the foster system, every year, in fact, in 2018, about 500 young people will age out of that system. They'll turn 18, they'll be emancipated, they'll become legal adults. Of that 500, about 125 of them will actually finish high school. Of that 125, about 8 will ever get a college degree in their entire life. About 100 of that 500 will become homeless instantly. About 150 of that 500 will be unwed and pregnant by 21. About 200 of them will serve time in prison by age 25. Beloved, these are young people made in the image of God residing in our cities, in our neighborhoods, here, Missouri. Speaking of the insane amount of kids that graduate out of the foster system that go to prison, you know, the United States represents about 5% of the world's population, but it represents about 25% of Earth's prisoners. We have the largest incarcerated population on earth in terms of percentage of our population. About 1 in 100 Americans are in prison right now. And what's crazy about that is if you go worldwide, Protestant churches, worldwide about 80% of Protestant churches have active engaged prison ministry. About 80%. If you go in the United States, the country that represents the largest prison population on earth, about 17% of our Protestant churches actually engage in any kind of regular prison ministry. But that's just the United States. You know, we heard this last week, but 90% of the non-Christian human beings in the world live in this area we call the 1040 window, which includes North Africa, the Middle East, and large parts of Asia. This section of the world that literally holds 90% of the non-Christian population on earth receives 0.1% 
of all Christian giving worldwide. And it represents about 3% of the missionaries that are sent out. 90% of the human beings made in the image of God who apart from a supernatural intervention of God will end their lives and face the wrath of an eternal God. 90% of them live in the part of the world that gets 3% of our missionaries and less than 1% of our Christian funding. Come on. Right now, while we're standing here, right now, China is experiencing what Christianity today calls the worst Christian persecution since the Cultural Revolution. Since Mao. While we are sitting here worshiping, there are churches being bulldozed and burned and public Bible burnings and pastors, even ones who have followed the rules and registered under the government being arrested and disappearing in the night. It's happening right now. And the church in China has been exploding for a while. And their persecution had let up a ton. And right now there is a massive crackdown. Insane crackdown. Guys, again, I say all that stuff, and I get it. That's numbers and stats and percentages, and some of you are even like, no, I want to Google that, make sure that's right. That's fine. My question is, what does that do to your heart? How does that engage you? What does that spark within you? And I know, I know, I know as I say that, there are some of us in the room that are like, man, that breaks my heart. That's terrible. I hate that. I'm just not called to that stuff. Like, man, I, I hate that. I hate that's happening in China. But I'm not called to be a missionary in China. Man, I, I hate that, that, that no missionaries are going, but I'm not, God's not calling me to go to Lebanon. I, I hate that truth about foster kids in Missouri, but I mean, my goodness, God's not calling my family to that. That would, wouldn't make any sense. God's not calling me to be a part of the solution of ending poverty or, 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 or racial discrimination. Like, I just, I can't, like, it just doesn't make sense for me. It doesn't line up with my calling. I know a lot of you in this room are thinking that sort of thing. I get it. That breaks my heart. That's just not what God has called me to. Okay? That's cool. I'll even take that. Because I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes, right? But let me ask this. If God hasn't called you to care for the orphans in our community, to love the abandoned elderly in our community, to go and preach the gospel to those who are dying without hope, what has he called you to? I'm going to say this boldly. It better be stinking good. And you better be able to clarify it and articulate it. And you stinking better be doing it. And I know that's harsh. I'm saying that harshly. I get that. I understand that. But guys, this is the reality of the world we live in. You cannot tell me. You cannot tell me that Jesus Christ the Lord of the universe, the King of kings, who we sing about, who is worthy of his name, who came to earth, who condescended and became a human being, who took the wrath of our sin, who bore the weight of the curse that his creatures, who he made and he loves, might have life. You cannot tell me that that God would say, you know what you're called to? Just enjoy your church, man. Listen to Joy FM. Chill out. Read gospel-centered life like 55 million times. You're good. He's not. That's not what he's calling you to. Those things are beautiful. Except for Joy FM. Those things are beautiful. (laughs) But beloved, God is calling you to be a part of his kingdom. To be a part of his work. He has freed you from death. He has taken the curse of your sin. He's taken your just punishment before God so that you can be free. 
He's called you out of darkness into light. And he has invited you to partake in his work. To join him in the freeing of this dead and cursed world. He's given you a free ticket to be a part of the most grand, amazing adventure in all of human history. Man, we just want to sit around. We want to let that pass us by. Hudson Taylor, the missionary who opened inland China to the gospel, famously said once at a missionary conference, he said, there are three kinds of Christians in churches. There are those that God has called to take the gospel around the world and proclaim it to the lost. There are those that God has called to equip and send the missionaries to go to the world and save the lost. And they're the disobedient. So what are you called to? How are you doing it? Well, I get it. Everyone in this room is not called to go into China and die for our faith. Everyone in this room is not called to that. But honestly, in a room this big, someone probably is. Everyone in this room is not called to foster kids or adopt them or to go spend time loving abandoned old people in nursing homes who feel forgotten. Everyone here is probably not called to give their lives to ending poverty in our city and our world. But man, you're going to tell me some of you aren't. You're going to tell me in a room this big, no one's called to be a part of that work for the glory of God, the salvation of the lost. Come on, guys. Come on. We all, we all know that's garbage. <laughs> like, it's this, I think in, in, in Western churches, we get in this mode where we know, like we know that we idolize stuff. We know that we idolize our wealth and our comfort. And we know that's sinful. But there's kind of this like silent mutual agreement that like, well, how about just none of us talk about that? How about we all just like take that piece of Christ's call and let's just collectively just kind of be quiet about that one. That way none of us has to call out the other and we can still have like awesome churches and we can still give money in our old used clothes to like ministries and we can be good. Guys, I'm just not, I just don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the kingdom. I want to be a part of the work. I want to see dead people in our city come to life. I want to see dead marriages resurrected and forgotten people remembered. I want to see the hurting and the marginalized dignified and healed and brought to their dignifier and their healer. Don't you? Don't we want to be in that together? Come on. I, uh, I had this thought. I didn't have this thought. I read this thought. It was funny because it was said by it was said by Hudson Taylor in a different context, and it was said by Francis Chan in a different context, talking about two different things actually. But uh, they said, you know, Hudson was speaking about mission work, and he said, "Man, what if, what if the Christian church just assumed that every single believer was called to be an overseas missionary?" who lived completely and totally by faith with no funding. What if we all just assumed that and said, God, I'm just going to go with this until you tell me something else. Francis Chan said the same thing about fostering and adopting. I mean, they said, this is, this is so, and, and, and I love this idea, right? So we tend to do this thing in the church where we kind of just assume everyone's called to be married, Right? God's called everyone to be married, for the most part. I mean, you know, some people he's going to give a special call to stay single. But for the most part, people are called to be married. And if you really pick at that, it'll usually come down to like, but man, marriage is this beautiful expression of the gospel. It's this beautiful theological articulation of, of who God is and how, how he's saved us and how he's sought us out and how he's made us his family. Could we not just say the same thing about adoption? that it's the most theologically rich articulation of God saving us from deadness? Could we just assume that every single person in this room is called to that unless God tells you not to? 
You're like, no, we cannot assume that, Pastor Sam. I don't want to go down that road. Man, what if, what if an entire church of people decided that that kind of work was more important than the American dream? What if an entire church of people decided that the American ideal of retirement and sitting on our butts on our paid-for house and watching daytime television was actually less important than this? And what if, what if an entire church of people just said, you know what, I'm actually going to spend my entire retirement, instead of going somewhere really cush, I'm just going to adopt 16 and 17-year-olds who will never see me as their parent. Who will never call me mom or dad? I'm just going to adopt them for like that eight months until they get out of high school and just give them a home base while they go to college and try and figure out adult life. Now I'm just going to do that until I die. That'll be my retirement fund. <laughs> That'd be crazy. It'd be insane. It would push against every button, every, every ideal our culture sets up. And I'm not saying all you guys should do that. But man, imagine if we all did. All right? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read us... I know I'm over on time, guys. I'm going to read us two scriptures. We're going to end out. I didn't even get to a whole bunch of stuff. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I recently read a commenter who said if, if James wrote this epistle to the American church in 2018, he probably would have said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the elderly, the foster child, and the single mother in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think there's something beautiful about that. And, and ultimately, it comes back to this idea. And I know, I, listen, I hit some vividly specific stuff, and I hit it hard. And I get that that just doesn't strike home with everyone. But, but, but I want to say this, because this strikes home with every Christian and every believer. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book on Christian hospitality, articulates that this thing that I'm talking about in a general principle that she calls radical, ordinary hospitality. And she essentially just says, at the heart of everything I just talked about, the church that visits the elderly in the nursing home and adopts the forgotten child and, and sends the gospel to the farthest reaches of the globe, that church, at the heart of that, is just a church that has said, we are open, and we love God and people more than stuff. And so all our stuff is open. Our home is open. Our dinner table is open. Our living room is open. Our schedule is open. Our checkbook is open. It's all open because God and his creatures matter more than that stuff. And so God may not be calling you to one of those things. Although we would be fooling ourselves to think he isn't calling some of us to those things. He may not be calling you to those things, but I guarantee you he is calling you to love the people around you more than you love your stuff. I guarantee you he's calling you to love your elderly neighbor whose kids don't visit them more than you love your TV time and your quiet dinner to, to slow down your mind from the week. I guarantee you he's, he's calling you to love your annoying coworker who drives you nuts and makes your job harder and take them out to lunch more than you love your hour to be calm and read Facebook. I guarantee you, God is calling you to be open-handed with the stuff of this world so that you can grasp tight around the stuff of the kingdom. Every single one of us can do that. You don't have to go into the darkest reaches of China and preach the gospel in places where Christians are getting killed and arrested. To open your home to people who desperately need Jesus. To open your heart and open your schedule to people who desperately need Jesus. Beloved, you want to get off the bench? Hold your stuff looser. Just let go of it a little bit. 
I'll end us out with this word from Paul. This is how he closed out the letter to the Corinthian church. Probably the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. He said this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Beloved, Jesus taught us that there is a ton of stuff that is totally in vain, and moth and rust will destroy it. But your open-handed, God-loving, people-including work for the kingdom will never be in vain, will never be wasted. Let us be that people. Jesus, we need you. We need you to change us and challenge us and call us out. We need you to show us the fleshly desires of our heart that love the fleeting things of this world more than we love your kingdom. And God, we so desperately need you to change us. We are so two-faced. We readily acknowledge our need before you and our desperate, desperate hopelessness and our sin in the face of your grace. And yet, we just love this world. We love our stuff and we love our junk. And we let that blind us. We let that blind us to the same work you did in our heart being done in the hearts around us. God, may it not be so. As we come forward today and take communion and remember your body broken and your blood poured out, God, may you strike us. May you cut us to the quick and remind us that your body was broken and your blood was poured out for all of your people. That even in this city, there are some you have still called who don't know you yet. That sacrifice was not enclosed to just us in our religious circle, but that you actually love your creatures. And you actually want life and redemption. God, don't pass us by and use others. Include us in this work. Forgive us our arrogance, our selfishness, our materialism. And God, use us in this work. God, I know that you are moving and working all over the world and you're calling forth agents of your kingdom from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. But God, don't pass us by. Use us in your kingdom. May the Western church, may Red Tree Church not just be a random pocketbook for the kingdom, but may we be the agents of your kingdom. Use us to draw the dead to life, and to draw more into the kingdom, to bring more marginalized, blind beggars to the feast that you've prepared. God, you're so good. You're just so good to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.